Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Okay, so some disclosures of financial interest. And I'm just going to want to say we live in an RNA world, right? Because essentially all of us have been transfected by synthetic mRNA. But just to remind everybody that in every cell, uh, we have RNA that's expressed. <laughs> Uh, and as uh, from genetic regions in the in the genome, uh, and they, they don't magically become proteins, and they don't magically uh, appear, um, at, you know, in different parts of the cell, and they all are localized and, and organized and, and orchestrated by uh, human RNA binding proteins. And uh, when I began my group at UCSD, you know, there were maybe three hundred to five hundred uh, RNA binding proteins annotated in the human genome. Uh, since then, through a variety of different technologies developed by many other groups, uh, including our group, uh, uh, we've identified now that there are at least uh, 2,500 proteins, including the human genome, that bind RNA. And this is a very nice diagram on the right by Tom Tuchel's lab in Rockefeller, where he uh, painstakingly you know, uh, illustrates that, that small RNA biogenesis uh, Long, you know, long linear non-coding uh, uh, non as well as coding RNA biogenesis. At every single step, there are proteins that bind them, bind the RNA, and, and, and mediate the processing of these. And then uh, in localization, and then even uh, uh, target the RNA to uh, for degradation. So we are very interested in my lab about RNA binding proteins and what they do, uh, you know, in, in different settings and development. Now, RNA binding proteins. Um, uh, bind to short cis regulatory elements uh, in the transcriptome. And these binding sites can be sequence-specific, can be structure-specific, can be three-dimensional uh, RNA structures these days as well. And, and, they, and the RBPs that bind these elements control um, gene expression. And there are you know, thousands of elements for any given RNA binding protein. And so one can imagine that if you disrupt uh, an RNA binding protein or you disrupt its RNA targets, uh, interaction, even a single nucleotide, it can give rise to many different forms of diseases and cancers. And my lab classically studies you know, development and degenerative diseases, right? So uh, we've, been, we've been very interested in, in trying to understand the basis of uh, RNA regulation, uh, uh, so-called the RNA binding protein, protein RNA interaction code. Um, and, and we do that by developing a whole bunch of different technologies. And so, uh, so just broadly speaking, we care a lot about RNA binding proteins as gene expression regulators, and we develop technologies to study them. Uh, we care a lot about RNA binding proteins these days as as drugs themselves. So, so if we you know we and others in the field have, have repurposed uh, different natural carrying protein RNA inter interacting complexes as as drugs, and then uh, more recently uh, in in the lab, we've been very interested in in RBPs themselves as drug targets. Okay, so. Uh, we used many different tools, and since this is a the genomic section in a you know stem cell uh, um, meeting, uh, you know I'm going to talk a little bit about how we think about RNA processing and integrate genomics and disease modeling and and, and come up with ways that we hopefully will be potentially therapeutically useful. Right? Okay. We take a very bottom up approach uh, in how we think about RNA binding proteins and RNA interactions. And so we care a lot about where every single binding sites are, right, in the transcriptome. 
and, and some of the technologies we have developed, uh, which could be helpful here in setting the stage for the, the, the science that, that I'll discuss, uh, is an enhanced clip approach. You know? So this approach requires cross-linking of RNA to RNA binding proteins and using an antibody to immunoprecipitate the RNA binding protein RNA complex out from the cell, uh, out from the, the rest of the milieu, right? And, and you digest away all the unprotected um, RNA uh, fragments. Um, and then you ligate the, the, uh, the protected you know, RNA fragment uh, with sequencing adapters and, and essentially do RT-PCR and generate a library that you sequence, right? So this enhanced clip approach cross-linking IP allows us to identify very robustly the binding site for a given RVP. And the technology we developed in 2016 it's about a thousand times better than any existing technologies before. And you can see every single dot here is a data set that's been generated by my group with this method. If you download all the other data sets out there, the y-axis is percent reads that are usable, meaning, meaning not PCR duplicates, right? So uh, essentially every single library generator here, you know, most of them uh, have a very high fraction of the reads that are, that are usable and not uh, amplified because initial library generation steps will pour. Uh, so this has been used by many groups, including you know, our group and, and lots of you know, publications uh, illustrating the ability for eClip to identify what RBPs do. Uh, however, there are some limitations. And so recently we've also published a different method where we fuse the RNA binding protein to apoback enzymes, right? And, and instead of an IP approach, uh, the apoback enzyme uh, changes C to use uh, in, in the RNA transcript. Uh, and then we can do regular RNA-seq, right, to identify whether RPP is bound because it's bound uh, and mediates these editing events. Uh, what's cool is that because you can do regular RNA-seq, uh, you can do isoform-sensitive uh, uh, measurements using long-read technologies like PacBio and Nanopore, and then single-cell experiments using 10x. So this is the first figure uh, data actually showing uh, a single cell binding of an RNA binding protein. And each, each um, track here is a, a single cell uh, example. So we use some of these technologies in a lot of our studies, and I'll talk about the eclip method a little bit more in this splicing one. And so this is a story that, that we started about six or seven years ago now, when Emily Wheeler uh, joined my group as a graduate student. And Emily has a personal interest uh, in, in blood cancers but came from an RNA lab in Indiana, Heather Hundley's lab. And so she really wanted to work on RNA biology as well, right? And, and so we teamed up with uh, a Rini Pepperotrov's group in Mount Sinai, and then later on with Ernesto and then Roger Sunahara's group at UCSD. Uh, Ernesto was in Singapore and then now he's at Mount Sinai as well. Uh, and, and so this, this project came about because actually Emily uh, reached out to Irini, uh, who is an expert in MDS and wanted to collaborate and said, can we do that? And I said, sure, like, why not, right? And, and so, um, so MDS is a group of uh, diverse bone marrow disorders, right? Where the bone marrow doesn't produce enough mature red blood cells. It's uh, primarily a disease of the elderly, but can also affect younger patients. And uh, normally uh, as, uh, as uh, David had pointed out, right? HSCs are important in generating uh, a variety of different cell types, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. But in MDS, uh, these stem cells don't really mature uh, or may have a shortened lifespan, thus you have fewer normal uh, mature blood cells. And for 30% of MDS patients, they progress to acute uh, myeloid leukemia. 
So in 2011, there was a landmark paper that was published that shook the MDS, uh, but also the RNA world, right? Because uh, they pointed, it, this paper pointed out that a large fraction of MDS patients uh, contain specific point mutations in splicing factors, right? And, and these are highly conserved point mutations in, in factors that bind the branch point in splicing, so SF3B1, uh, binds the things that bind exons, exon sequences, SRSFs, and then three prime splice site sequences, U2F. Uh, these, these mutations were, are heterozygous and, and were also mutually exclusive, right? So they don't happen uh, uh, with each other. And, and, and so that suggests that, that there might be some downstream common target um, that uh, lead to the phenotypic, uh, monoclear and phenotypic consequences, right? And so this paper was published, published to 11 and, and clearly, you know, many, many groups uh, in the interim uh, published a lot in this, in, in this, in this uh, falling, falling on this study, right? And, and, you know, the obvious things were done, right? You take mice, you know, you, you, you overexpress the mutants, um, splicing factors with the specific mutation and see what happens. Or you take K562 cells, you overexpress the splicing factor uh, with the mutation and then you see what happens. You take patient, you know, uh, RNA-seq samples and you just look at RNA splicing, right? So, so many studies have, have, have been performed already, right? And yet there hasn't been, you know, a, a convergence on, on why mechanistically there are, there are diff different splicing mutations and, and what are the, the downstream events that actually cause the disease, right? And, and ultimately, can we actually use the information to, to generate therapeutic outcomes? And so with all these studies, uh, as I mentioned, mice get very mild with any MDS phenotypes. Many studies looked at splicing events uh, in the mice cells and tried to compare that to human. Uh, but, but I know from our own studies that I published in 2005, for example, that, uh, that showed that only about 25% of, of alternate splicing events are conserved in human and mice. So let's look at human systems, right? Uh, many models of leukemia express these mutant splicing factors at very non-physiological levels and and not the cell lines don't express the same genes as HSC. So, so it's really unclear still, so far still with the splicing targets that people have identified with RNA-seq. Are they even direct targets? Are they even bound differentially by these mutant splicing factors, right? Um, and so Shaley, Shaley in Arini's lab did something really beautiful, right? Uh, she, she first took human IPS systems and made single point mutations with CRISPR-Cas9 uh, uh, in, in, you know, in the generic heterozygous mutation. So SRSF2 point mutation, the P95L mutation, and then separate line U2F1 point mutations, S34F, right? And then uh, from our pushing her, we said, hey, you know, we encourage you. We want to eventually look at binding site differences, right? Are the splicing factors to bind RNA, are they binding different sequences, right? And to really do that in the right context, she then knocked in three uh, X flag tags in the in the mutant allele or the wild type allele in the mutant background or the wild type background. And I think this is a it's a really nice system because it keeps the the copy number of the mutation uh, carrying allele the same, right? And, uh, and you can then IP and pull down these binding sites. In in their essay, which they do all the time, and I don't really uh, uh, do this in my group, but but they look at at differentiations of these uh, of these cell uh, cell types, right? Uh, IPS systems, and then look at uh, colony forming potential in uh, methyl cellulose assays, um, and they find that indeed you get a 
when you do differentiations of these lines in many different replicates, uh, you can you see a, a reduction in the uh, mature colonies that form with the mutant lines, but not the wild type. So I, this assay, I you know, Arrhenius Labs has published before, and and I, I take a word for this. Uh, uh, they, they seem to uh, be quite confident that this is the assay that they they use to score. So again, these are differentiated in Arrhenius Lab into this uh, HS uh, progenitor cells, um, and and what what she's been then giving us right thus far is that. Uh, she's been isolating uh, these different Waltam and, and, and HSPCs and then sorting them for CD34, CD45 positive cells, and then sending us uh, re, uh, RNA or a frozen uh, lysate to do our experiments. Okay, so the first easy experiment is to look at RNA-seq data, right, uh, in the mutant versus wild type. And so we define here uh, U2F1 uh, wild type. Uh, and then U2F1 mutants. And then we look at the score called percent splice in for exons that were included or exons that were excluded. You know, this was the score that was uh, developed by my grad school mentor, Chris Birch, as a percent splice in score that's been used throughout the splicing literature. So PSI tells you that is exon included more or less. So the exon included more in the wild type versus the mutant situation. We call that a wild type exon. But one's really, but it's really excluded in the S34F mutant, right? And then this, then once included in the mutant, but excluded, we call it S34F uh, exon versus wild type. Same for this. Uh, and so the first analysis was to ask: um, Are there from these groups of exons that we can distinguish uh, that were mutant or wild type specific in a different context? What were the mutations? Sorry, what were the preferences, right? And so we can see that the wild exons were included in the wild type, but skipped in the mutant tended to have the UAG sequences for the U2F1 muta mutation. And then the ones included in the mutant, but skipped in the wild type had the CAG preference. This was known before. This was published from, from many RNAs data sets. So the preferences were at least the same and correct. And then same for uh, the SRSF2 mutation, uh, mutant preferences, they actually, uh, uh, the exons were just skipped and included differentially in mutant versus wild type had different preferences as well. This is already known. And so this, this confirmed what, what we've seen in patient uh, uh, RNA-seq data sets. Uh, but what the next step is, are these due to a physical binding or a differential binding of the uh, RNA binding protein? So what Emily did was to do allele-specific eclip, right? So she could tap to IP uh, in the different alleles. And, and in the wild type and mutant allele, the wild type and mutant allele, and, and first, our first pass typically is to ask, do the binding sites uh, make sense with regards to the molecular function of the protein? And so this RNA binding protein U2F1 binds typically the three prime splice sites. And you see this green, this orange representation tells you that it's indeed enriched over there versus the other regions in the transcript, right? On, on average, right? And same for SRSF2, uh, they typically bind exon sequences, as you can see from this blue, uh, there's a reduction in binding, but still the representation overall looks the same. So the representation of the binding for both wild type and mutant alleles are the same, but, but are the, the motif preferences the same? And indeed, that was where we thought it was very interesting because we find that the, the mutant preferences uh, were different, right? So indeed, we see similar to what you see and expected from the, the exons that were changing, the binding preferences were different. So CAG preference versus UAG, and then same for the uh, um, uh, SRSF binding sites, right? 
So again, preferences uh, for the binding sites were actually distinct, uh, and but fortunately corresponded to the RNA-seq uh, induced uh, RNA-seq mediated like splicing measurements. Right. Next, we combine the binding patterns, direct binding, with the the uh, um, RNA-seq in the, uh, measured changes. Right. And so we con we generate these RNA splicing maps. Uh, you know, these are ones where you can look for canonical exons that were included or excluded, and, and they overlap the binding patterns from the clip data, right? So this tells us, for example, that exons that included more in wild type but skipped in new end were enriched for binding for wild type exons, right? And same for both. But exons that were included in the mutant but skipped in wild type were, were had more binding for the mutant splicing factors. And when Emily broke this up into three different categories, it became even clearer, right? So you can even take all, ex all exons that are alternately spliced and, and bind them to only ones having the wild type binding, binding pattern, which is both, <clears throat> or the, only the mutant binding peak. And just using UTF-1 as an example, uh, exons which only had the mutant binding peak, right, uh, were included more in the mutant uh, cells versus wild type. Ones which only had the wild type were included more in the wild type cells versus the mutant. And, and I won't go over some of the specific genes here, but I'll point out one of them in the next slide. So what Emily did was then overlap, obviously, the two splicing events uh, between, there were differently spliced between different mutations and asking, is there anything in common? And then she overlapped that also with MDS patient cells, you know, just to make sure that some of these were changing in patient cells. And that was a very small number. And then she finally got to um, overlapping the differential eclipse binding and it was an even smaller number, right? So we got to only three exons. And at this point, I thought this project was, was dead in the water. Um, but uh, but and this is just showing the, you know, the overlap with differential binding. But then Emily showed me the, the actual genome browser tracks. And you know, I love to look at these, right? So this is U2F1 wild type uh, binding on the GNS um, exon three. And I'll tell you what GNS is in a bit, but there's no binding there. And then the UTF1 mutant binds there. And in fact, because it binds here, it includes this exon uh, more in the mutant condition versus wild type. You can make the same argument for the SRSF2 binding sites, uh, but just to show you that in this specific exon, which is the uh, exon three of the uh, GNAS gene, uh, alpha stimulating you know, guanine nucleotide binding protein, right? Uh, you see a higher inclusion of these exons in the mutant case from the IPS models, but also in MDS patient cells. And so the next question that, that um, Shaley and Emily asked was, can we express the long isoform with this, one iso with this one exon to reproduce the MDS phenotype? And the answer is yes. So they can express just the long versus short in wild type lines and to induce this phenotype that they measure. Uh, and then you can also knock down the isoform alone. So exon three knocked down to then uh, correct the phenotype in the mutant cells. So then we were, we were very interested in this GNAS uh, long isoform, right? Uh, so what's been known uh, and published by our colleague, right, at UCSD, Rafael Bahar, uh, was that there was actually a, a, another mutation in this GNAS gene found in a small percent of MDS patients, somewhere else in the gene, and it's R201H, and it was it's an activating mutation. And so we hypothesized that the exon 3 inclusion may also be a activating you know, mutation, right? Uh, so G-alpha-S, so G right, which is the protein 
that is uh, translated from this uh, GNAS gene. It's a member of this heterotrimeric family of G proteins activated by GPCRs. And in the inactive state, G alpha is bound to GDP and in, a, in the uh, inactive state. And then to, be, to become active, it has to like, release GDP, exchange it for GTP. Um, and, and, and so we, we figured maybe this, this one exon inclusion event altered this balance, right? So we are not experts in GPCR, so and, and, and so we reached out to Roger Sunahara's lab. Actually, I'll correct. Emily Wheeler reached out to uh, uh, her colleague uh, in Roger Sunahara's lab. And then Roger said, yeah, this seems like an interesting project and was very excited because uh, uh, they had been studying G-alpha as for quite a while uh, in different, different forms of cancer. And it's the first time we've actually identified an isoform in G-alpha S to try to understand what it, what it might do differently, right? And so here, what, uh, what uh, Roger's lab did was to make recombinant long and short and basically uh, have a non-hydrolyzable form of GTP, so gamma S, and, and, and uh, see if the capacity of binding it was different. And indeed, the long isoform actually bound uh, uh, this, uh, this form of GTP uh, faster than the short isoform. And then in other studies, which uh, I don't have time to go through, he also showed uh, uh, quite convincingly to us that, that the long isoform indeed is, is ultimately more active uh, than the short form. Okay, so what does this uh, G alpha S long isoform do? Well, to cut a long story short here also, we, we eventually found that it activates ERK MAPK signaling. If you overexpress the long isoform, uh, you can get higher phosphor ERK. Uh, this is true for IPS, the IPS HSPCs, you know, from, from cord blood, CD3 for positive cells, as well as the in, in uh, MDS primary cells. So you get higher levels of, of ERK activity since many GPCRs uh, regulate ERK. And so this hypothesis turned out to be correct. And, and what got Irini uh, even more excited is because she had colleagues that were down the hall studying uh, this pathway. And she pointed out that ERK MAPK activation Right, uh, might be, might be, you know, since it's different here in this splicing factor mutant cells, maybe there's like a way to test the dependency of this splicer factor uh, mutant cells on, on this signaling pathway. And, and MEC uh, is upstream of ERK in this pathway. So there have been several MEC inhibitors uh, are currently uh, FDA approved uh, in oncology for uh, melanoma and other solid tumors, uh, including. Uh, uh, this one here as we use the control. Uh, and so, but then you want to test the MEK inhibitors versus this mutant BREF inhibitor, even though they're all like, you know, melanoma, we use the melanoma. And so she, she tested these and turns out that, um, you know, all of them so far gave, uh, you know, uh, vulnerability or, or, or mutant cells showed marked sensitivity to all these inhibitors, but not the control. So it's quite interesting, right? So. So, so what we think is happening is that in splicing factor mutant cells, you know, between these two splicing factors, there's, there's many splicing changes, but ultimately one, one that's relevant to the phenotype that we can reproduce, right? And, and this isoform uh, of, of G, uh, GNAS or G-alpha long uh, seems to be controlling or upstream of uh, ERK uh, uh, signaling. And, and you can leverage this to actually uh, provide, uh, in this case, reproversing of, of uh, compounds uh, for, for MDS. And so with that, I'll, I'll just stop and thank you for the opportunity to, to tell you about science. And I'm happy to take questions. Um, we'll have to 
invite you to my lab and I'll have to teach you how to do hematopoietic yes. colony assays. So Perfect. my first <laughs> paper using human embryonic stem cells was literally titled hematopoietic colony forming cells derived from human embryonic stem cells because it is a great assay, though we don't do it as much anymore. Um, but it's... Yes, I, I will take you up on that offer for sure. <laughs> for somebody in your lab. Uh, it is something we're, we're looking at getting back into some early hematopoiesis studies. So um, if anybody has any questions for Gene, we, we got a minute um, and, you know, can maybe ask, I, you know, again, I think it's great looking at these MDS targets and, and really figuring out these, these mechanisms and, and potential druggable targets. Um, maybe I'll just ask if what's next. Um, are you still there? Did we lose you? Yeah. You're I'm there. Still here. Yeah. Okay. So what's, is there what's more the on the list there then for targets and uh well so no. so we are we are continuing to look at at um the splicing of GNAS because it turns out that this isoform is interesting for a variety of different cancers, not just this one. Uh and so we're we're developing ways to to try to modulate and understand the splicing directly of, of GNAS, which I think would be very useful. Let's see. And mm -hmm. then uh you know, in Irene's side, I think they're pushing hard to think about uh, using these uh, MEK inhibitors for MDS patients. So mm -hmm. that's something that I think uh, will may, will continue on from a translational perspective. Yeah. yeah, I think that's interesting. And then I'll ask, well, you know, we got a second, you know, again, it's, it's great getting into MDS and, and hematopoiesis, but how much, and, and I know you've looked at a number of degenerative disease, right? I mean, are these all you know, I'll say yeah. independent pathways, or are there common mechanisms oh, yeah. they in are... sort of these, in any of these sort of, you know, I consider this sort of a, you know, we kind of think about this as a disorder of aging, right? That as you yeah. get older, you accumulate these defects, but I don't know if that's I mean, there are, it turns out, and this may, may go on to, you know, the next session, but there are actually a lot of spicing events that change during age and and there many of them are in signaling pathways and so that might actually provide opportunity to think about reju rejuvenation and you know anti-aging stuff right so but but you know i don't know if they're cause or consequence right these are things that are correlated so far yeah so far okay great thanks so much gene